Welcome to the Running Explained podcast. I'm Elizabeth, a marathoner, running coach, and answer seeker. When I became a new runner at the age of 29, I had so many questions, but it felt like I was on my own to figure out all of the answers. So now I'm here to answer all your running questions to help make you a better, smarter, faster runner. There's no question too simple and no topic too complex. So let's get started. My guest this week is elite marathoner and iron researcher, Dr. Mikhail Montgomery. I mean, when do you find an elite marathoner who is also an iron researcher to come on your podcast, talk about iron for runners. It is the perfect marriage of topics for today. When she is not training to run Olympic trials qualifying times in the marathon, Dr. Montgomery works at Oklahoma State University studying iron metabolism. Not not necessarily the stuff we're gonna talk about today. Our topic today is relatively superficial when it comes to how iron works in your body compared to the research that she's doing, but whoa, does she know a whole lot about iron. If you have any questions about how iron works in your body, why iron is so important for endurance athletics, why anemia is so common among runners, what happens if you have too much iron in your body, and what the training of an elite level marathoner looks like who also works a full-time job and like has a family, this conversation is for you. Dr. Mikhail Montgomery, welcome to the show. I'm very excited to have you here. Hi, thank you for the invite. I appreciate that. So before we get started to talk about iron, tell us a bit about yourself as an athlete and as an academic. So as an athlete, I grew up wanting to be a basketball player. Um, When I was uh, 15, though, we moved out to the country and um, we lived about four miles from town and I didn't have a car. I was 15. So to go to the gym, I had to run there. So to run four miles to the gym. So it turned out that fall, I did make the varsity basketball team, which was awesome. Um, and then that spring, I won the first of my eight state championships in track. <laughs> a little bit more of a payoff for that. And I ended up getting a scholarship, and I got to go run. At, I ran at Texas Christian University. But I had a really hard time coming from, like, small-town Oklahoma to Division One track and cross country. And so I had a pretty lackluster college career. Ended up not doing much for three and a half years, and then winning a conference championship my senior year. So it kind of come, came around. And then when I went into grad school, I still was, you know, an okay runner. I would go to like any local race that was like a hundred dollars for this, to win this race or get certificate to this restaurant to win this race. And that's kind of how I sort of supplemented my income during graduate school. And, and, and then I Kept going, got a postdoc, found a running group, kept running. I, I really wanted to try to make qualify for the Olympic trials in 2012, um, and I missed it by 68 seconds. So that stunk. And then in 2016, they lowered the time standards, and then I missed it by six seconds. Um, and then in 2020, I finally finally nailed it, and that kind of really kicked things off. I, I got quite a bit faster and 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 so forth. So that's, so my running trajectory, um, my academic trajectory kind of follows along with that suits. Uh, whenever I started running in high school, my mom got me a subscription to runner's world, like the hard, you know, like the magazine that you flip through. And I covered to covered that thing every month, but I loved the nutrition articles. So interesting. Um, and so whenever I started college, I decided to study dietetics because I just wanted to know what those people knew, like everything that a dietitian knows. How do you know that? I want to know that. Um, and I loved um, learning about it. But it, and once I went through my internships, I realized I did not like telling people what to eat. It turns out people really don't like being told what to eat. And, it's, and I don't enjoy that aspect of it. Uh, you know, I liked learning about it. So I decided graduate school was a great, great choice for me. And, and sort of in that interim, too, I had a classic runningish experience, probably what we're going to get into here, that started not being able to finish workouts, started slowing down, started feeling tired all the time, got some blood work, found out I was iron deficient, started supplementing iron, and lo and behold, I was back to normal. So I got to experience that real world nutrition influences my performance. Wow. 
Um, and then I, got, I just got kind of lucky in grad school. When I started my master's degree at Oklahoma State, a new uh, researcher was starting his lab and he studied iron metabolism. So, my, you know, sign me up. And that, that was kind of the beginning of the end for me. I've been studying iron, specifically iron, since 2007. Um, and I don't study it with performance related or anything. Um, I really focus on, I would say, oh, I study, oh, generically, I say, oh, I study nutrient gene interactions in chronic disease development. Um, but specifically, I study how iron metabolism is influenced by disease-associated genetic variations, so whether that be in cancer or Alzheimer's disease or whatever. Whatever messes up iron metabolism, I want to know about it. <laughs> That's fascinating. So more of the health side versus the performance side of iron. Yes, absolutely. Yes, more, more of a wellness perspective, yeah. yes. <laughs> and actually, I think when I emailed you to pitch you, I was like, I know this isn't cancer research, but do you want to come talk about iron for runners? <laughs> Well, I mean, are things running in iron. Yes, yeah. I want to talk about that. <laughs> and I think for, uh, I, you know, anemia, iron deficiency is really common in runners. And that's part of what we're going to talk about today. But like all the things that we discuss on this show or that I like to approach in general, I want to make sure we're studying from the same fundamental understanding of the topic. Sure. So let's go back to the basics and talk about what role does iron play in the human body? Well, I'm getting ready for a big trace metals iron conference in the summer. And so if you're talking to an iron biologist, we would, you know, diehard iron biologists say iron is what started life on this planet, right? This reaction that it does with oxygen to allow us to metabolize is how life began. Um, and so it is absolutely critical for life. Um, it's it's involved in DNA synthesis, so we can't make DNA, our basic backbones, without iron. It's involved in DNA repair. When that gets damaged from sunlight or environmental hazards, um, iron is involved in fixing that. From another life-preserving but more performance-related standpoint, it's critical for oxygen transport. We can't breathe without having sufficient amounts of iron. And in that whole starting point for life, it's critical for energy metabolism. So its ability to donate and receive electrons allows it to help us produce energy in the body so that we can move and live. And so those are your iron basics. It's, it's important. Where do we get iron from? Um, largely from our diet. So iron is, um, it's the most abundant metal on earth. It's actually also the most common nutritional deficiency on earth. So we get it from our diet, um, but it's not particularly bioavailable. That means even though we can consume it in things like meat and spinach and supplements, we don't absorb it particularly well. And so the only way we can get in iron is through our diet or a supplement. I suppose we could talk about intravenous iron supplementations at some point, but that's the only way we can get it in. And so most common dietary sources are meats, you know, red meats, dark meats, higher in iron. But of course, that there are plant-based sources too. Uh, um, and so, but that's the only way to get it in. We'll talk about the performance. Actually, I would argue that it sounds like the role that iron plays in the basic functions of the human body, like DNA synthesis and repair is important for performance as well. Like I know we focus on the oxygen mm -hmm. delivery system um, that iron has in our bloodstream. And I say, well, you kind of need to be able to repair damage on a, in mm -hmm. our actual cells mm -hmm. with our DNA and, and all of that. So really important. I think people really focus on the blood thing and they think, oh, it's just, you know, if I'm a little bit anemic, eh, if you're a little bit anemic, that sounds like it's going to be a problem no matter what. Uh, and and I was going to get to this later. I hope we'd get to it later. But um, your tissues get depleted of iron first. So your skeletal muscle is the most sensitive to iron depletion. So your skeletal muscle, which we used to run, can become iron deficient before you actually detect it in blood. So we want to make sure that we're getting adequate amounts in our diet and that our needs are being met. So let's talk about the performance angle, specifically mm -hmm. the role, the essential role that having adequate iron available in our bodies plays in our ability to perform at an optimal level as endurance 
cardio athletes as mm-hmm. runners? Mm-hmm. Well, so biggest one, right? If, if it's critical for oxygen transport, not enough iron, first thing we typically notice is reduced aerobic capacity. Your, your ability to transport oxygen is reduced. A lot of people like to talk about their VO2 max. It's going to affect that. Um, it also, because of that, it, because it's importance in energy production, it influences with energy efficiency. So it's harder for you to do the same amount of work as someone else sitting next to you who has plenty of iron. Because of that reduced capacity to transport oxygen and you're working harder, you can actually increase lactate production faster. So you go lactic more easier, right? And lactic acid, that doesn't feel good. We've felt that burn before, so we don't like that. Um, And then the overall, you're working harder just to do even little amounts of effort can cause um, increased exercise heart rate and actually non-exercise heart rate. So you're just working harder all the time. All these things can influence physical activity and all of that can be impacted by not having sufficient amounts of iron in your blood and in your tissues. I don't know for anybody else, but for me, sometimes it's easy to forget that of all these little trace minerals, elements, things that are available in our body, like iron, et cetera, that they get used up. I mean, obviously you're talking about iron metabolism, right? And like, mm-hmm. it's, it's hard to think of our body using iron that then, mm-hmm. then needs to be replaced by eating something that contains iron. I'm going to catch you on something right here that it's, it's really misunderstood. Um, the body is an incredibly efficient recycler of iron. Oh, it's so incredibly efficient. We actually, to, we have 900, I believe it's 900 billion red blood cells that all contain iron. And we replenish those red blood cells. They, every 90 days they die off. So we are constantly making, we're making sure we have 900 billion red blood cells and we need to use iron to do that. And we only can get it in through our diet. So we actually don't excrete iron at all. The only way you can get iron out of the body really is through bleeding. Um, mostly, mostly that's it. Argue a tiny little bit, trace amounts through sweat and some other things. But um, So you get it in, you can't get it out, but we don't get very much of it in. So we actually recycle and use about 25 milligrams worth of iron every day. 25 milligrams. We only absorb about two grams, two mill. sorry, two, two milligrams, two milligrams. That's a thousand fold less every day to meet those needs and keep going. So, um, we do recycle it really, really well. So it doesn't like just go away. It's iron, right? It's here to stay. It doesn't decay into the beyond. Um, but we need to replace that iron that we do lose in women through menstruation in runners through foot strike hemolysis and those types of things. Um, so we're getting in what we need to replace it, but we're recycling it so well. That's the human body is just endlessly fascinating. Um, I was going to actually, I wrote down my notes. I'm like, but you menstruation, you would lose it through menstruation. So Mm -hmm. if you have, I mean, I talk about the risk factors for anemia. If you have exceptionally long and heavy periods, Mm -hmm. you may be at higher risk of iron deficiency, Mm -hmm. et cetera. Well, I'll let you ask questions. I won't guide it. I wanted, I was going to talk about other reasons you might become anemic as a runner beyond menstruation, because that's only half of us, right? Exactly. Well, oh, both of us, but half yeah. of the runners out there. 100% of this conversation 100% is 50% of the world. Exactly. <laughs> um, this isn't really something that I think a lot of people pay attention to until they actually experience iron deficiency themselves. Because mm-hmm. usually, as you experience, I had I was anemic a couple years ago, and it wow, everything feels much harder. I'm struggling on my easy runs. I kind of feel breathless all the time. You know, and for some people, if they become extremely anemic, like it, they can't do anything. But most people don't even realize it's something they need to pay attention to until they've been like something forces them to go seek answers and get blood work done, or their doctor suggests it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's um, part of why it's so common. You know, a quarter, approximately. That's that's estimates. A quarter of the world's population is iron deficient. More than 2 billion people are iron deficient, right? And your generic first symptom 
tired, I lack energy. It's kind of symptomatic of a lot of things, right? It takes a long time for major clinical manifestations to arise unless you're you know, functionally doing something like exercise. It's probably why we get are more aware of it as runners because it influences our, what we call our daily activity versus um, someone else that, that might not be the case. Although if you are a physical worker, it can absolutely infect, impact that. It's interesting that a lot of these studies that dem- clearly demonstrated low iron impacts human performance were done in developing countries in workers who do things like pick tea and collect rubber. And they showed when they corrected their iron deficiency, they were so capable of doing so much more work, literally work. <laughs> and here we're talking from a work running perspective, but truly it has an impact. So let's get, let's get a little bit technical because I think it's really important for people to understand when we talk about iron is in your red blood cells and it helps deliver oxygen, you know, circulate oxygen, deliver oxygen, just in a really not ultra technical, not like graduate level biology here. How does that work? What, where is the iron in the red blood cell? How does the iron, what's the relationship the iron has to the oxygen Then it can take the oxygen to your, where it needs to be? How does that work? So the iron is found within hemoglobin. Hemoglobin is a protein in red blood cells that has an iron at center core is made up of iron. And that iron, because of its ability to donate and accept uh, electrons, can reversibly bind and oxygen, which means it can pick it up and it can let it go. That reversible component is important, right? And so that iron in hemoglobin allows the red blood cells to travel to the heart and lungs, pick up oxygen, go to our rest of our tissues and deliver it. And so that's the basics of how that works. So very clear illustration is if you have insufficient iron, you have insufficient oxygen, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what happens is your hem- your red blood cells get made, but they don't have as much hemoglobin. So we call those, that's called, that's basically the definition of anemia. These small, immature red blood cells uh, are incapable of appropriately delivering oxygen. Um, and so that that's whenever that happens to a measurable amount, that's when we have actual anemia. Though you can certainly be iron deficient without being anemic. And that that's, that's a really fine line that... Um, I think a lot of us probably walk as as runners, whether or not we're iron deficient, anemia, anemic, and so um, there's a growing amount of evidence that says you can be iron deficient without being anemic, and your performance can still be impacted. So it's kind of a good idea to know what your status is. As I was mentioning before, your tissues, so your skeletal muscles, are going to become iron deficient before your body's going to start stop making hemoglobin, right? It's going to say, oh, well, we'll cut down on things we don't absolutely need. We absolutely need oxygen. So let's make a few less iron-containing proteins in the skeletal muscle first. Body's good at maintaining life, right? There's a protein in skeletal muscle called myoglobin, which functions very similarly to hemoglobin, but exclusively to skeletal muscle, giving that essential oxygen to those muscle cells that require oxygen for energy metabolism. Um, And so it can become, it's usually one of the first proteins that we can see in the lab as starting to reduce in response to to iron deficiency. And that's something we talk about, the different types of of muscle fibers, fast twitch, Mm -hmm. slow twitch, and all the different subtypes. Some muscle Mm -hmm. fiber types have a much higher concentration of myoglobin, and some have very mm-hmm. little myoglobin. Yes. So this, Mike, I guess, theoretically, it would be more apparent for an endurance athlete to understand if they're anemic compared to maybe a sprinter. I only ask because I know somebody's going to say, but what about sprinters? And I say, oh, gosh, I don't know the answer to this. I should have asked it during the episode. Well, <laughs> sprinters, you know, they're working hard in really different ways, you know, um, so they're not doing as much pounding on their feet. So they don't get that same level of foot strike hemolysis, which is the breakage of red blood cells in your feet, literally from hitting the ground all the time. And if you break those red blood cells, which we all do, 
then your body has to make more of them. And guess what it needs to do that? It needs iron. <laughs> and so, you know, sprint a sprinter is less likely to become iron deficient. They would equally be impacted by iron deficiency as far as total work and ability to do more, but um, probably less likely to become deficient. So you mentioned earlier, you know, there are a couple different um major factors or influences in how somebody might lose iron to the point where they become deficient or anemic. Mm -hmm. Obviously menstruation is one, foot trichomalysis is another. What are the other risk factors or ways that we lose iron that could be meaningful for an endurance runner? Um, other the two big ways for an endurance runner besides those is we can, because we just sweat more, you do you lose some iron in sweat. So, so you are losing some there. Uh, um, other two biggies, and this is, I mean, I, I practice, we all, a lot of us, even elite, sub elite, try to hit that threshold of I'm pushing myself maybe too hard sometimes. Um, exercise induced inflammation can actually Im negatively influence absorption. Hmm. So, uh, iron is essential for life. And not just for us, it's essential for life of bacteria and life of viruses and life of parasites. So if the body senses that there's something wrong, it will actually try to take iron away from those bacteria. It'll try to take iron away from those viruses. If there's inflammation, it'll try you. So it senses that there's something wrong and iron is reactive. And so it tries to protect it. So it actually will uh, stop absorbing as much. We already don't absorb it very well. And if there's an inflammatory condition going on, we'll absorb it even less. So if you're overtraining, you're probably also have some underlying inflammation and now you're not absorbing as much iron, even if your diet hasn't changed. Also exercise, strenuous exercise can cause a little bit of what we call hematuria, which is blood in your urine. Um, hopefully, you're not doing that on the regular, but I, I actually have been able to, to visually see that after a really trying marathon, like level effort, you know? And so, you know, it's in, and that's visually, there's probably some amount, some other times, but those are the big ones, um, right? For women, menstruation, for runners, long amount of time feet, we're breaking those red blood cells and making more. And that inflammation can play a big role, especially with overtraining. So we talked about measuring iron. We, if we're really trying to get a handle on our iron in our body, we want to measure iron and ferritin, right? That's a great, yes. Ferritin is a really common one that we measure to get an indicator of iron levels going on, right? So iron is just what you think it is. It's the amount of iron in your blood, which we know a range of which that should be. Um, and ferritin is the protein in the body that stores iron. So ferritin's job is to store iron. So iron is highly reactive with oxygen. It's one of the things that makes it, helps us live. It's also one of the things that can cause damage. Oxidative stress is very damaging. And so iron can react with oxygen and produce what we call reactive oxygen species that can damage our tissues. So to prevent that from happening, we store iron in a protein called ferritin to take keep it away from that oxygen and to keep it from reacting with anything it shouldn't. Um, and so we think sometimes of ferritin as just this really great indicator of iron status because the first thing that's going to happen, right, is your stores are going to get depleted. We said, okay, there's a difference between iron deficiency and anemia, and we might be able to feel deficiency first, even before anemia. And certainly we'd want to correct it before we get to the point where we're no longer producing adequate, you know, red blood cells. Um, so ferritin is a great way to measure iron stores. And if that we can measure and we can see, oh, iron is getting depleted before it's having a huge functional impact. So yes, measuring ferritin is, is a great indicator in that way. Um, couple things though, in thinking about that, if you just go for a checkup, unless you're seeing sports type specialists, they're probably not going to measure ferritin. Okay. And they're not going to measure ferritin one because it's actually an expensive medical test. It's way more expensive than serum iron or hemoglobin and hematocrit. 
So you typically have to specially request ferritin if you want that measured. Another thing to think about with ferritin though, is it's what we call an acute phase reactant protein. It's a little bit odd, but I mentioned that iron is critical for us and bacteria and parasites and viruses. And so if we have some sort of inflammation or stress or infection going on, ferritin goes up to keep iron away from any of those things. And so if you have an underlying infection or some underlying chronic inflammation and you measure ferritin levels, it might look normal or high even. But that could just be a reaction to the stress and not a true indicator of overall iron levels. So um, you kind of have to take that with a grain of salt. You, you can take a cancer patient and they're going chemotherapy and they're becoming you know, wasted and we can look at it. We can measure ferritin and it will look normal. But you have to take that in totality with amount of iron, amount of hemoglobin. It could just be the stress result response. So ferritin, great early indicator, nothing else going on, all things considered. Good way to get at, am I deficient, iron deficient, not yet anemic, but in total, you have to take it sort of along with everything else going on in the body at that same time. So it sounds like a ferritin is really a true snapshot, but it could change like almost day to day, whereas you're almost, almost maybe not that yeah. fast, but that can change much more rapidly versus the regular, how much mm -hmm. iron is in your blood that changes. Mm -hmm obviously can change, but changes a little bit more slowly if there is a change. Yeah, it's, a yes. So measuring total iron is in better. And sometimes they'll measure it and they'll call it transferrin saturation. I'm not sure if you've seen that, but um, so iron is just the iron. Um, transferrin is the protein in the blood that carries the iron. And so we'll see how much iron is being carried versus how much could be carried. Um, so if, a if you're 100% saturated, you are so full of iron, you can literally carry no more in blood. That would be unusual, right? And if you're 0% saturated, you're really iron deficient. So that's a, probably a little more commonly used clinical indicator. Again, a little bit cheaper than ferritin too. But ferritin, I mean, it's not like your doctor won't do it. You just have to specifically ask for it. And I'll preface this by saying, listener, you should always ask your own medical provider what your, your values should be. But we know that the values for performance are a little bit of a more narrow range compared to the general population. And actually I'll give an example. I have an athlete who's currently, you know, had some blood work done recently is currently working with a dietitian and their iron was at the bottom end of the range for the general population. But from a performance perspective, they were deficient. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's why we want to make sure that we're ex looking at these values in this blood work from a sport performance perspective and not a general population perspective. If somebody's looking at blood work and saying, well, my, my primary care physician said I was low, but okay. Mm -hmm. If you were to see that as a nutrition, you know, obviously a doctor of your field and say, mm -hmm. if I see something below this value in iron or in ferritin, I would, I would recommend some follow-up. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's a great question. It's a little bit hard to answer because I would, yes, I would absolutely recommend a follow-up, but this is why it's so important to get that baseline. Some people run high, some people run low. Um, and, and so, you know, high to the standard population is one thing. That's what our doctor can use. That's the, one of the best indicators they can use, but higher low to yourself is really the better indicator. Um, I see so many platforms now going to personalized blood work. I actually think it's great. Um, you getting educated in that and having that, those baseline values, knowing where you run before I'd say, oh, my ferritin gets to here and I know I, that's going to impact me. Um, versus your ferritin gets to wherever and you're going to feel that. And it probably is going to change from individual to individual. And Although as a ballpark for ferritin, I'd say if it's lower than 30, <laughs> you're probably going to feel that. As this also obviously depends on if it's on the lower end and you feel bad, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> if it's on the lower end and you feel great, you know, that's There's different. That. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so what happens when iron's too high? Oh, well, 
that's um, a whole different side of the story, but not really. You know what happens? The first symptom of being iron overloaded, tired, fatigue, not feeling it, right? That's those first symptoms of being iron deficient. So that's tricky. So I'll say this, it's, it's bad when you don't have enough iron. It's worse to have too much. You know, too little iron can be like, I didn't run that race as fast as I wanted to. I'm struggling to finish workouts from an endurance perspective. We're, I mean, mostly keeping it on that. Um, too much iron can lead to arthritis, diabetes, heart disease, liver failure, liver cancer. Liver failure and liver cancer is the most common cause of death in individuals with iron overload. Um, and that's scary, right? Because I just said the first symptom of iron deficiency and iron overload is fatigue. And I'll give... Uh, an indicator that really hit home for me with this, um, one of my best friends and I were training together for a marathon. This has been, goodness, almost 10 years ago now. And I had struggled with an anemia before and I knew what that felt like. And I was feeling that. And I was like, I, you know what, I, I just got a physical, but I probably need to go pick up an iron supplement. And she was too, I, I'm tired of fatigue. You know, we're in grad school. It's stressful. We are kind of tired, but she was feeling a little more tired than usual. So, so she said, maybe I need an iron supplement too. Um, but I'll go ahead and go get a physical. Just, she had some other stuff going on. Well, so she comes back and she was a good thing. She had, she had bought her iron supplements, hadn't started taking him. Her ferritin was 400. Which is my, my jaw just dropped. That is, that is like yeah. off the charts high. <laughs> That's off the charts. And that is an indicator of iron overload. And she ended up doing genetic testing and she has hemochromatosis, which is a genetic iron overload disorder. And um, so supplementing iron would have been really, really bad for her. We have no way to get iron out of our body. When it's in, it's in. Um, when the damage is done, the damage is done. So it, it's imperative to not just supplement iron because you're feeling tired. Go to the doctor first. Have your blood work done. And I've actually seen this a lot recently because we talk more about anemia and the signs and the symptoms where you are deficient. It's very common among runners. And just like you illustrated, oh, I'm training super hard. I'm feeling a little bit more fatigued than normal. I must be iron deficient. I'm going to save my trip to the doctor's office and just pick up something at CVS. And yeah, I'm, I'm, she was she was a young woman. She has periods. She runs. I must be iron deficient. Hemochromatosis is actually, it's actually the most common genetic metabolic disorder there is. And for individuals from like European descent, it affects about one in every 200 individuals. So it's, so it's, it's actually quite common. So yes, do your blood work first. Uh, you might be deficient, but you might have something else going on. So some of the more common, and again, when I people are like, my iron is this. And I'm like, don't ask me that. I don't know. But it does sound mm -hmm. like there are two kind of common situations that somebody went and got their blood work done and they say, my iron is normal, but my ferritin is low. That's kind of like the, mm -hmm. eh, you're, you might be, be becoming deficient. Mm -hmm. And then the other one is my ferritin is high and my iron is low. That could be a, you are mm -hmm. deficient, your body's in protective mode. Yeah, you've got some maybe some underlying inflammation, some other infection, even something else going on. Absolutely. So looking at them together is really important. So what the body does whenever the it, iron is high enough, it actually, for uh, for me, for you, it sounds like if we have sufficient levels of iron in our body, the, there are signals sent from the liver actually to the stomach that says, hey, stop absorbing so much of this iron. We have plenty. Uh, individuals with hemochromatosis, that signaling is shut, is blocked by that genetic mutation. And so the, no matter how much iron is, is in the body, the intestine keeps absorbing it. And that's why they get so much. That's how they get iron overloaded. So if she'd even just taken that supplement that she would have absorbed. Like, she would have taken it up very efficiently. And wow. So, you know, for her, you know, and she's controlling it right now. She's just following a mostly vegetarian diet and still running. For her, lucky, she had a baby and that helped. <laughs> kind of, she didn't have to take an iron supplement during pregnancy, so that was good. So you mentioned before this term bioavailability, mm -hmm. and 
let's talk about that because the bioavailability of iron is dependent on the source and people think, oh, I'll just eat a bunch of spinach and get some iron. The bioavailability of iron in spinach is like you're better off eating a steak if you want, if you're really looking for iron. Oh, well, yes, absolutely. Yeah, so the plant-based iron is bound usually in what we call a ferric iron form, Fe3+, plus. if you think back to your chemistry days. And to be absorbed, it has to be in its fairest form, Fe2+. Plus. And um, the one, one way you can enhance absorption, if you are a vegetarian and that's your go-to route, is you can consume that spinach with something with some vitamin C. Vitamin C is capable of reducing ferric iron to ferrous iron so that you can absorb it. So that's great, right? So throw in some, so some oranges or some strawberries on your spinach salad to help unlock that iron and maximally absorb what you can from spinach. You know, even though in a, so in a healthy individual whose iron is adequate and we're just absorbing regular amounts, we absorb only about 30% of the iron that we consume in our diet. So it's pretty low. That efficiency is higher when it's coming from animal-based, so meats, um, closer to 30%. That's lower, closer to 10% when it's coming from plants and things like cereals and so forth. So, um, yeah, and I love that iron is fortified in cereals. That's great. And then we actually consume it with milk, which actually can compete with iron for uptake. And now we're not absorbing it as efficiently. You'd be better off having mini wheats in a bowl of orange juice, but that sounds gross <laughs> as far as if you're just talking to maximize iron absorption. Um, but yeah, so um, iron is a pretty poor bioavailable nutrient. What are some other things that prevent you from absorbing iron properly? So inflammation is one of those things. Um, so I talked about how inflammation can make, because ferritin is an acute phase reactant protein, so it goes up. Um, if inflammation is high, so it can make it falsely look like you have more iron than you do. I also mentioned, I said that the liver signals to your stomach to turn it off. Um, the liver makes a hormone called hepcidin, um, and that's what controls absorption of iron. It, it, it tells the stomach, yes, keep absorbing, no, don't, and it shuts it on or off. Um, if you have uh, inflammation or infection going on, the liver will make more of that protein and shut down absorption. So not only do you have an infection or inflammation or some other stress stimulus, um, your body will then tell the stomach, stop absorbing iron. We have, you know, we don't want any more. And so that can, that's another reason that um, endurance athletes could have potentially less anemia because they're just not absorbing it efficiently because they're constantly inducing these bouts of inflammation. Um, those are the big ones that can keep you from decreasing. Inflammation is a major one. Infection, stress. Um, Infection, I can think of still technically being in a pandemic, people who have gotten sick recently mm -hmm. or in the past year, two years, mm -hmm. uh, especially very sick. They, that sounds like that might impact their iron mm -hmm. levels. Absolutely. Um, and I've seen some interesting things, but I, I don't want to speak about it, but just snippets here and there that sort of long COVID has been influencing things like ferritin levels and beyond what baseline were for individuals. So I'd love to see that data more in its totality when we have longer term effects. Uh, another one that can influence that we don't think about it, maybe not for the everyday runner, not for me, I guess here in Oklahoma, but um, altitude can influence. So altitude, there's low, less oxygen available at altitude. Uh, the body will compensate by making more red blood cells. But if you don't have enough iron to support healthy red blood cell production, you can become anemic that way. Um, so that, that can be an issue too. So if you're thinking about buying an altitude tent or something. Um, or going to altitude camp. Yes, you know? <laughs> absolutely. It, it, it absolutely can influence your iron levels that way. Um, something I've wanted to ask about was hematocrit. Mm -hmm. What is that? So hemoglobin, right, is the protein inside the red blood cells that has iron and carries the oxygen. Hematocrit is, is a, just a 
clinical measure, and it measures the total volume of red blood cells within the total volume of blood, right? So your blood isn't 100% red blood cells, it's other things, but it takes the whole volume of blood and then how many red blood cells are packed into that volume of blood. Okay, that makes sense. The more red blood cells would be ability to transport more oxygen. So having high levels of that could potentially be advantageous. So from from a purely clean sport perspective, then somebody training at altitude would hope to then increase their hematocrit because they would hope to have more red blood cells stimulated by the low oxygen Mm -hmm. environment to then hopefully see if they can't gain a little bit of a performance on race day at yes, sea level. Yes, that's the whole train. That's a big part of the live high, train low, or live high, race low mentality. Is yeah, I mean, person for person, if their dietary needs are being met, going to have probably higher hematocrit than their sea level counterpart. So from a dietary perspective, are if most people, if they're eating a proper diet for their needs, are they going to be getting enough iron? Uh, it depends on most people. Most people's a strong generic association. So a typical Western U.S. diet is fairly iron deficient. So we would say, you know, a woman, reference, needs about 18 milligrams of iron in their diet a day. A 2,000 calorie Western diet is going to have somewhere in the neighborhood of 11 to 12. Um, That's just a standard American diet. That's not the standard endurance runner diet necessarily. You know, standard endurance runners might have, (laughs) might be more cognizant and aware and focus on eat more spinach and eat more lean meats and that sort of thing. An average individual who was meeting their daily iron requirements should mostly be fine. But then you factor in how much is that? So then we could take it to the average runner. How much are they running? How many miles per week are they running? You know, what, how much foot strike are they getting? Are they a man or a woman? Are they menstruating or not? You factor those in and it starts to, okay, I eat 18 milligrams of iron a day, but I'm still iron deficient. Why? Well, I have, I have higher needs. If we're, if we're wondering if that's elephant in the room, do I take an iron supplement? I do. <laughs> um, I have my, I've tested regularly. I cannot maintain normal ferritin levels without an iron supplement. I run hundred miles a week though, <laughs> plus 90 to hundred miles a week. Plus I work in a lab and plus I am a menstruating female. So, um, I have found that I cannot maintain adequate iron levels through my diet, even though I have a pretty pristine diet, pretty, um, without supplementation. With everything with running, the more running that you do, the more your needs change, the more your needs increase on certain things, the more sleep you need, the more carbs you need, Mm -hmm. the more blah, 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 blah. Right. So, you know, if, for example, if you ran, if you took you out of, out of your current training plan and plopped you into like 20 miles per week, you might not need that supplement anymore down the road because it would be a drastically different training load. But for somebody who is, uh, I see this a lot, people who are entering the sport and then they just keep building and building and building and building their volume. And all of a sudden they've gone from 15 miles a week to 60 miles per week, but nothing else has changed in their life or diet. Like that's a problem. Mm, Absolutely. Yeah. We forget about those. It's so easy to forget about the little things like sleep because that that's been my challenge. We'll come back to it. I'm going to focus on iron, but my big challenge with running hundred miles a week is if I'm going to run hundred miles a week, how am I going to still sleep enough hours a day? with a full-time job. So how am I going to get enough iron a day through my diet? It turns out I'm not. It turns out I'm going to need a supplement. And I eat a ton of, I, you know, I run 100 miles a week. I get a lot of calories in, but I try to eat a lot of plants, try to eat a lot of healthy, other healthy things. And meat's expensive. Yeah. So you were saying you know, the, the average, let's just say for example's sake, 18 milligrams per day, mm-hmm. but you said the body can really only absorb about 30% of that, right? So even though we're ingesting, mm-hmm. hopefully that 18 milligrams at minimum, depending on what our needs are, you're only absorbing a third of that. That'd be six. I mentioned before that the body's really good at um, recycling iron and we know that. And so we factor that in to that recommendation. We make that recommendation higher than what you need each day. So for an average person, not runners, because I honestly don't know this number, maybe I should, but your standard person loses with sweat and poop 
and P, about two milligrams of iron a day. The, but, but the recommended daily allowance is 18. And that's to overcompensate for the fact that we are not going to absorb it very well. And that if your body is functioning normally, it won't absorb beyond what is needed. So it takes what it needs and lets the rest pass on through. Mm-hmm. The bioavailability of supplements, and obviously this can be dependent on the person and, and all mm-hmm. of that, but different supplements have different bioavailability. So you might see a supplement at CVS says, oh, it's 65 milligrams. That's the one sounds like a lot too. It doesn't mm-hmm. sound like it's gonna be absorbed all the way, but also different forms of iron mm-hmm. have different bioavailability mm-hmm. rates as well. So your most common ones, and, I, and I, I don't know the exact numbers on these because I haven't read the studies in that much detail, but your most common iron supplement on the shelf is ferrous sulfate. And that's because it seems to be the most bioavailable. However, it can be impacted based on how it's packaged, right? I generally recommend if you have gone to the doctor and you are iron deficient or anemic, and now you know you need a supplement, buying a true just just iron supplement, you know, if you're going to go multivitamin that has 150% of your iron requirements, it also has your calcium and it also has your magnesium and all those things are going to compete for uptake within the intestine. So you're not going to efficient absorb it as well. I also recommend, I don't know, maybe I should brand it. I, I take this one called Vitron C and it's, it's uh, ferrous sulfate with a hundred milligrams of vitamin C packaged into it in my hopes that that's going to help up pre, I mean, that's how it's supposed to work to help reduce that iron to get it absorbed better. So, yeah, I mean, and there's, I, when I was looking into this, just to remind myself of some of the basics, you know, those really high dose iron supplements oftentimes have really low um, compliance because they give you tummy aches because of the other issues that are going on. So so my recommendation would be try to find the lowest dose of supplement that still gives you a beneficial effect so that you don't have the constipation, the stomach ache, the other issues that come along with those really high dose iron. Any, any way it's going to have more than your daily requirement and more than you can absorb at any given time. And again, this is like, don't just take one just in case. Don't ever no, supplement no. just in case. Never just in case supplement. Never. Not a good idea. Um, this has been fascinating. Is there anything else you think that the average runner should know about iron and how it relates to their running and their health? One of them things that we're recognizing now that is also maybe a symptom of iron deficiency that might be you might not recognize because your training is restless leg syndrome. So, you know, you might think my legs feel like this because I'm training so much or running so hard. Um, still worth maybe going to the doctor to get checked out for because it can, has been associated with iron deficiency. And I think that, that, you know, running might mask that <laughs> um, if you're otherwise feeling mostly okay, but then having, having some other issues. So that one was something I thought maybe worth mentioning. It's always worth I don't have any, I don't, unfortunately, don't have any sponsors from any of those companies that do baseline running, you know, value, blood values, but, you know, getting that baseline is good. I do mine. My work gives me $20 off of my insurance every month to regularly get my baseline checked. So I take advantage of that. You don't need to necessarily buy into one of those subscription services to know what your baseline are. And I think it's tough because I got a question about, inside tracker from a European mm-hmm. person who said mm-hmm. that's really expensive is doesn't your insurance don't you don't you get blood work for free and I said well it depends on your insurance and it depends on what they decide to cover it depends on what they want to actually reimburse you for and even if you are covered you might still have to pay out of pocket for a co- like and they're just kind of like mind-blowing emojis like are, are you mm-hmm. kidding me it's like no this is American healthcare that's the way the system works what yeah. <laughs> So it sounds like if anybody is really serious about the, I I would say really serious. If anybody is training intentionally to try to improve their performance in any capacity, sounds like they would benefit from understanding what's actually happening inside their body and getting their iron tested. Just to know. Just to know. uh, Yeah, I agree. Just to have a baseline. It just gives you a good indicator. Yeah. If something goes wrong, you know, is this normal? Is this not? Some people fall on the low, the high. I think so. Um, 
and re and then you can use it to reevaluate too about you know how you're approaching your diet in general. It's terrible. I've studied nutrition. Well, I, I did my bachelor's in nutrition, my master's in nutrition, my PhD in nutrition. Um, and I didn't start paying super close attention to my diet till I had a child. And I was like, I have to, I don't know what to feed her. Let me <laughs> learn about what I should actually be eating. Um, and I mean, there, I'm sure there were a lot of other things that play years going on, but whenever I, um, really did all the math to match my diet specifically to my running, I went from being a 245 marathoner to a 234 marathoner. Um, so that's my sell on learn some basic nutrition or visit a dietitian or that's the unlocking that next level. Yes. And everyone who I've talked to has made any sort of huge performance breakthrough. And that's, that's amazing. I mean, most people don't make that kind of improvement at the times that you're running. It almost, it, it seems to come back to keep your easy days easy and get your nutrition figured out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I hate it. The, the whole, you can't run from a bad diet, man. I tried that for years. <laughs> um, and it was, you know, and I, it wasn't like I had a bad diet. I didn't have a typical, just, it was not a bad diet. I, I had a very strong understanding of nutrition. Um, but I just didn't want to appreciate that unlocking that next mode. If you really tailor it to you based on your own body needs, how incredible it is. I should know that I should have known that. So what are you currently training for in your, uh, in your training cycle? Um, I'm actually getting ready for the Oklahoma city marathon. So that's next month. I'm, um, excited about it. Uh, cause it's local. I, I won. That was the first marathon I ever won, which is cool. Winning a marathon is cool. I don't care. Even if you don't do it fast, even if you don't, even if whatever, it's fun. Even if it's small. Um, I won that race in 2013 and, I really, really just want to do it again. Um, that would be fun. So that's my goal. Um, and I want to get an Olympic trial qualifier. Um, I'm always good at getting these last miss efforts. You know, they, they announced the time to be under 237. And I ran 235 20 days before that would have counted. <laughs> and so now I still need to do it again because I... <laughs> So that's a bummer. And that's too bad because with the pandemic, I know that for I, probably not the Olympic trials, but for a lot of qualification periods, they've had that huge extension. I know for Boston, it was like, if you've run a BQ anytime in the last three years, we'll take it. <laughs> no, the Olympic trials, they were like, uh, they actually, they, you know, rate, they, they lowered the pace so or whatever. You have to run faster and they shorten the window and you have to do it closer to race time. So, uh 37 so my window my window is also narrowing people are doing great things at 37 i have great right great women role models to look at right now and very true. running that are older than me and just yeah. knocking it out of the park so that's awesome i think i what was it i read when they tightened the standards from 245 to 237 it would it took the field if they had only taken the women's field because the women's field is much larger than the men we have a lot of really talented mm -hmm. women and the men's standard is we can debate that later um but it would have taken the field in Atlanta down from like five or 600 women to like a hundred or so. Mm -hmm. But then the whole, everybody said, well, if this is the new standard, like there are people who can do that. There are a lot of women in this country who can run under 237. They just, mm -hmm. you know, didn't necessarily need just to run that to. fast before. <laughs> mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't, I, I think it's, yeah, I love that debate. I, I train with a, uh, young man in his twenties, which is good. That's why I stay fast. And, um, we've, we've had that debate a lot about the, the times or for men versus women, but something we always have to something to talk about in the running world, right? <laughs> yeah. It's great. We asterisk it with our new shoes and everything else. Yeah. I, I like that too. I mean, are you going for your OTQ qualifier, um, you know, in Oklahoma? I am. I, I, I'm going for broke. I'd like to win it. I'd like to get the state record and I'd like to get the OTQ while I'm there all, all in one field swoop. The cool thing, I mean, maybe I should pitch the Oklahoma City Marathon, but it's really just for Oklahoma. Um, the Oklahoma City Marathon 
in Oklahoma is like the Boston Marathon everywhere else. Um, they live broadcast it. They are film crews. They film the male and women the whole time. They lead. They talk back and forth. I mean, it's it's quality marathon coverage. They do the feel-good stories in between. Everybody in the state watches it. Um, it's super neat. So it's a fun experience that, that everybody's a part of, and it's, it's for a good cause. So I love it. Um, and there's something nice about a home field advantage. Can't argue that. You don't get that in running super often. Um, so I figure I might as well really go for it. And how's the course? Is it flat and fast? It's fair. I mean, I would call it an honest course. It's, um, it's the weather that'll get you here. (laughs) It just, it's been 80 this week. It was, feels like 29 this morning. We had 35 mile an hour winds. We had no winds. So that's, that's my, that's my, my unknown right now, this thing I can stress about, but have zero control over. That's my lot that you lot you can control and a whole lot you can't when it actually comes to race day. But absolutely. So we'll, we'll see, but I'm looking forward to it. It's gonna be fun. In the meantime, yeah, I'm mostly just trying to stay local. I have this dream, my, my dream schedule of getting my Olympic trial qualifier done next month so that I can try to work on speed um drop down for a speed block <laughs> do a speed block in 2023 is before the trials just to uh, mix it up yeah I, yeah the, the you know the kira mottos of the world and zero holes of the world are so inspiring like we're not done yet i think i thought i would have laced up my shoes by now and i feel like now i'm like well, I, yeah it's, i want they can do that i want to do that i'm gonna try that it's and awesome. that's so nice to see i mean i'm i'm in my early mid Mm thirties. And it's nice to feel like I might just still be getting started. I mean, I know that I am, but to feel like Mm -hmm. I have more longevity than I previously thought is Mm -hmm. really cool. That's really, it just, it it opens so many other doors. I think it does. It makes you just not even afraid. I mean, I feel like before, yeah, with somebody asked me about, do you think there are less opportunities for women? in racing. And I, you know, I said, no, the opportunities for women in racing are there. What's challenging. And for a lot of us, especially traditional, um, states and livelihoods like we are now, right. Is, is the opportunity to train for it. Right. If I'm, I work, I work, but I'm also supposed to cook and I'm supposed to clean and be the primary caregiver. And, now I have this evidence of, you know, no, I'm not done. Look at this, right? I, I need to get out there. There's still more than I can do. I'm great. I have a very supportive husband and mom and mother-in-law. But yeah, that just that evidence of, I don't have to hang it up just yet. I think everybody, I, it's so funny. I feel like finally now people have stopped saying, you're still running? You know, you know, we went to high school and then ran to college and they're like, you're still running and college after college, you're still running. And you don't have to just stop running because some part of your life is over because you're, you're 30 now. Cause you have a job now. Cause you have a kid now. There's no, it doesn't cap it. People have asked me, they're like, when should I, when do you start slowing down? I'm like, well, how about you train as well as you can for as long as you can? And you, you find out when that point is for you. Cause if you expect that, oh, when I turn 40, that's it going to get slower every year from there. Like, what does that tell you? I know people who've set PRs, good PRs in Mm -hmm. their forties, you know, there is really no limit until event. I mean, eventually there's a limit, but it probably isn't where you think it is. No. And with the advances we're making with nutrition and shoes to preserve knees and maintain muscle mass, it's just going to keep extending for a while. Well, I'm really excited for you. I hope you get your triple crown uh, in Oklahoma (laughs) City this spring. (laughs) Uh, That would be awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your truly expert knowledge of iron in the human body and the science of endurance and how it relates. Um, I, you know, the more knowledge that we have about our bodies, the better. I think that especially in our culture, we're so used to kind of stuffing down the things that we should be paying attention to. Like I feel tired all the time. That's a problem. You know, all these things that we're just conditioned to accept as normal, maybe they're not normal. Maybe there's something to it. Uh, and learning to connect those dots. I think it's really important just for people to become really good runners, but also just become healthier people. Oh yeah. Just in general. Yeah. Your, your body usually, we just, we, you mentioned 
it's amazing how how intelligent the body is, right? I, it just does these things without thinking, without us thinking about it. And that, so listening to your body when it's trying to tell you something is really important. Except in a marathon, then you say, shut up, body. We're going to yeah, do this anyway. Shut the hell up. <laughs> and then three hours, four hours, whatever, you get you to the line. Exactly. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I can't wait to see what you do. Uh, All right. Well, thanks day. for, yeah, thanks for letting me talk about my two very favorite things this afternoon. That was awesome. <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Don't forget, you can always find and follow me on Instagram at Running Explained. And if you're looking for a coach or a training plan, check me out. Visit my website, runningexplained.co. That's runningexplained.co. See you next time. This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition.